0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We've been blessed in the past few weeks with some great guests, but today's show is going to be one of those about once a month programs we do where we try and catch up on the volume of material that does pile up in preparation for this show. I mentioned the fact that uh, we've been going through old files to reorganize them to make them more accessible, and looking around the room now, I see 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 stackable plastic filing boxes. That's a lot of material. A lot of it's never seen the light of day on this show, but uh, a lot of it uh, still could. In fact, as we do today's program, we're going to mix a bit of old with the new. Because in going through some of this old material, my uh, jaw still drops at some of the headlines. But let us begin today's program, as we like to do, with On This Date in History. Our date in question is the 9th of February. It was on February 9th in 1825 that the U.S. House of Representatives voted to elect John Quincy Adams president over Andrew Jackson, despite his loss to Jackson in the popular vote. He also got fewer electoral votes than Jackson. But no man had a majority, so the U.S. House stepped in and picked Adams. Although Jackson is considered one of the founders of the modern Democratic Party and he is on our $20 bill, the House probably acted correctly. At least if we're to trust Thomas Jefferson on this. Jefferson said in 1824 he couldn't think of anyone who would be a worse choice for president than Jackson, or or words to that effect. So I guess you have to laugh when you realize the Democratic Party still holds Jefferson-Jackson Day dinners now and again. Speaking of presidents on this date in 1861, Jefferson Davis was formally elected president of the Confederate States of America in Montgomery, Alabama. I don't believe he finished out his term. On February 9th in 1950, Wisconsin Republican Senator Joseph McCarthy waved his infamous sheet of paper in Wheeling, West Virginia, and claimed that it was a list of more than 200 known communists working in the U.S. State Department. And although one supposes there might have been a communist or two in the U.S. State Department, none was ever uncovered due to McCarthy's rantings. For the next few years, however, he had the whole country in an uproar over the communist scare. When he got to the point of claiming that the U.S. Army was (laughs) filled with communists, the powers that be finally turned against him. On this date in 1965, the U.S. committed its first combat troops in South Vietnam, initiating America's involvement in what was to become then our longest war. That unfortunate debacle has subsequently been eclipsed by both the uh, swamp of Iraq and our still ongoing war in Afghanistan. Of course, they claim the war in Iraq is over. Since we don't have, quote, combat troops, unquote, there anymore. We're a bit skeptical. On February 9th in 1971, two things happened. First of all, there was a 6.5 magnitude earthquake which struck California's San Fernando Valley, claiming 58 lives and causing more than a half billion dollars in damage. It also upgraded California's earthquake standards subsequently. And on a happier note, American baseball pitching legend Satchel Paige was inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame the first Negro League star to be selected. We, of course, would we'll refer you to our wonderful interview with Larry Tai about his biography of Satchel Paige, which can be found in our archives at radioparallax.com. That, that was a fun one. And uh, final item, February 9th, 1964, the Beatles appeared live on America's The Ed Sullivan Show before an audience of 728 screaming fans. They played five songs, including All My Lovin' and She Loves You. Our quote of the day comes from journalist Robert Quillen, who said, Discussion is an exchange of knowledge. An argument is an exchange of ignorance. Our bonus quote, and this is truly an oldie but a goodie from our files, comes from the King James Bible, Ecclesiastes, which I'm sure you know. It is, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And our quip of the day comes from Wilson Misner, who said, The race may not be to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, but that's how you bet. And I know we used that one a few years back, but doggone it, it's so good we couldn't resist. Our joke of the day also comes from our archives. As you're no doubt aware by now, Proposition 8 was declared unconstitutional by an appellate court. I suppose the final decision may yet go to the U.S. Supreme Court. But in all the talk about the homosexual agenda, which one does hear about from certain right-wing sources from time to time, we thought we would actually reveal to you the actual homosexual agenda. Now we can't reveal where we obtained this copy, but we do trust our sources. And according to them, the homosexual agenda is as follows. 7 a.m. Gym. 7:45. Massage. 8 a.m. Breakfast. Skim milk, oatmeal, and egg whites with a dash of paprika, sliced kiwi, and honeydew melon. 9 a.m. Manicure. 10 a.m. Clothes Shopping. 12 p.m. Brunch. Lightly glazed salmon, asparagus, spinach salad with vinaigrette dressing. 1.15 p.m. Assume complete control of the U.S. federal, state, and local government agencies. 2.00 p.m. Undermine healthy heterosexual marriages. 2.20 p.m. Replace school counselors with gay activists and Colombian drug cartel members. 2.40 p.m. Bulldoze houses of worship. 3.00 p.m. Seize control of internet resources. 3.30 p.m. Steam bath. 4 p.m., facial massage to prevent wrinkles from the accumulated stresses of world conquest. 4.30 p.m., cocktails. 5 p.m., chat with friends on how to best subvert all mass media. And 6 p.m., light dinner, bisque, French bread, Chardonnay. So there you have it, the homosexual agenda. Our stat of the day is kind of an odd one. But it turns out that uh, at the start of the Super Bowl, they do a coin toss, and apparently the NFC had won 14 straight coin tosses. The odds of winning a coin toss 14 straight times is 2 to the 14th power, which I think is over 8,000 to 1 odds if I did the math right. So The question for you, dear listener, would be, what do you think the odds were that the NFC was going to win a 15th straight coin toss? Well, while it's true that the odds of winning 15 straight coin tosses are 16,000 to 1 against, it was still 50-50 when they flipped the coin on Sunday. If you don't understand how this can be, please do not go to the casino. Anyway, speaking of the Super Bowl, which was certainly one of the better contests that have been held in its, what, is it 46 years? I, they keep using Roman numerals, so I get mixed up. Super Bowl XLVI. Yeah, that's, that's 46. Giants beat the Patriots as they did four years ago, but one of the strangest endings I've ever seen in a football game. Giants running back Ahmad Bradshaw tries to hit the deck before he goes into the end zone, but can't quite manage, so it turns around and sits in the end zone with nobody near him. Had he managed to fall down short of the goal line. New York could have won the game by running out the clock. But since he did score the TD, they had to kick off and give the Patriots one more shot at it. Very odd. It may mark the only time I've ever seen a football game where a guy was basically led into the end zone by the defensive team. Or at least one that you could tell that's what happened. Anyway, we look forward to talking with our sports expert, Sean Minton, about uh, about that game since it was sort of interesting. And uh, I do want to congratulate Al Michaels for the great job he did in the play-by-play it's rare to find a really, really good sports broadcaster, and Michaels is certainly one of those. And Chris Collingsworth was okay. But uh, Michaels is up there with Pat Summerall, uh, John Madden, and, uh, you know, the, the upper tier. Yeah, we're not sure Howard Cosell will be numbered among them, but, you know, he's missed just the same. All right, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Hey. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a couple weeks back for rewriting history after the Tennessee Tea Party activists demanded that the state legislature change curricula and textbooks to omit negative views of the Founding Fathers. Teachers should stop repeating an awful lot of made-up criticism about, for instance, the Founders intruding on the Indians or having slaves or, or being hypocrites, said a Tea Party spokesman. What do you think of that, Mr. McMillan? Yeah, me too. On the other hand, it was a bad week a couple weeks back for making amends after owners of the Costa Concordia cruise ship offered survivors of the ordeal in Italy a 30% discount on their next cruise, quote, if they want to stay loyal to the company, unquote. No word on how many takers they've gotten. It was an ugly week last week for having a sense of humor in the reaction of some members of the Sikh community to a joke Jay Leno made on The Tonight Show. Apparently, Leno showed a picture of the Golden Temple of Amritsar and said it was the summer home of Republican Party hopeful Mitt Romney. Indian Overseas Affairs Minister Viola Ravi called Leno's comments quite objectionable and said, freedom does not mean hurting the sentiments of others. The Indian government has even asked the ambassador to take up the matter with the U.S. State Department. Evidently, thousands of Sikhs have signed an online petition demanding an apology for the, quote, infamous mockery of a sacred shrine, unquote. Mr. McMillan? Yeah, it was a joke. And sadly, we have an ugly week for having a sense of humor. Part two in the following. According to the Week magazine, a British tourist was handcuffed and barred from entering the United States because he had tweeted that he planned to, quote, destroy America, unquote. Lee Van Bryan, age 26, said he tried explaining to special agents in Los Angeles that destroy in current slang meant to party quite hard in. But evidently his clarification fell on deaf ears. Said Van Bryant, they just told me you really screwed up with that tweet, boy. Now we have to admit, Ms. Mullen and I were somewhat skeptical of this news item. One has to ask, how would the Department of Homeland Security see Mr. Van Bryant's tweets? I don't know the answer to that, but that's a pretty disturbing question since uh, on the web, there is a uh, reproduced copy of what looks like official documents showing this man was refused entry in the United States. Saying, quote, Mr. Bryan confirmed that he had posted on his Twitter website account that he was coming to the United States to dig up the grave of Marilyn Monroe. Also on his Twitter account, Mr. Bryan posted he was coming to destroy America. According to the Mail Online website, Van Bryan's friend Emily Banting was also stopped and questioned about this supposed threat. According to the website... The couple was held in custody for 12 hours, then returned to the airport where they were handed documents which stated they had been refused entry to the U.S. Emily Banting's charge sheet stated, It is believed that you are traveling with Leigh Van Bryan, who possibly has the intentions of coming to the United States to commit crimes. Apparently, both people have been told they must now apply for visas from the U.S. Embassy in London before they try to fly to the United States again. But you know, doggone it, with this kind of vigilance at our borders, I certainly do feel safer. Don't you? This does remind us of the item we quoted a few weeks back on this program from our files. About the visit by this, of Secret Service agents to cartoonist Michael Ramirez of the LA Times. In the wake of him drawing a cartoon depicting a man pointing a gun at President Bush. This item that we have from July of 2003 it was noted that the Secret Service visited the paper's Los Angeles office for what was said to be a routine inquiry following the publication of the previous Sunday's Ramirez cartoon with a man drawn in the cartoon pointing a gun at the president. The Secret Service's comment was that it was responsible for looking into any perceived threats against the president. To digress a bit, how does this uh, contrast with... Um, the study done a couple years back by a couple of nonprofit journalism organizations looking into the statements made in our ramp-up to the war against uh, Iraq, which noted that George W. Bush and administration officials over a two-year period made at least 935 false statements, among them stating unequivocally on at least 532 occasions that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction or was trying to produce or obtain them, or had links to Al-Qaeda, or both. And also there's this item from the boring but important uh, category of the Week magazine from last week's edition. The Justice Department had charged a formal Central Intelligence Agency official with leaking classified information to the media about the capture and brutal interrogation of a suspected Al-Qaeda operative. John Kiriakou... 14-year veteran of the CIA, was charged with, among other crimes, divulging the names of two CIA colleagues who interrogated al-Qaeda operative Abu Zubaydah, and lying to FBI agents when questioned about the leaks. Now, how does that square up against the Valerie Plame outing by top Bush administration officials? And which we pretty much know it was either Bush, Cheney, or Scooter Libby, or perhaps all three. But guess who took the hit for that one? Yes, divulging the name of CIA colleagues and lying about it later, and that'll get you in trouble if you're John Koo. But apparently, if you're the president or vice president, you get a pass. That seem reasonable? And from the Only in America file, from the Week magazine, one of our favorites of the current edition, we have this item. A six-year-old San Francisco boy was accused of, quote, sexual assault, unquote, for touching his breast friend's groin while roughhousing. Evidently, a school principal made the charge in suspending the first grader. His mother threatened to sue and had his record cleared. Child psychiatrist Stuart Lustig said schools often overreact in such situations, quote, because of the legal environment, unquote. Well, we'll have more to say about the legal environment in our second segment. But let's see what our old pal Will Durst has to say about our current political climate.
1: Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few words on the Republican unreality show playing out on TVs across the country. You know, the one where the last person voted off the island wins all the money he can grab from the Koch brothers and the chance to oppose Barack Obama this fall? It's certainly an entertaining production, but a bit confusing. Can't figure out if this primary season should be sponsored by planners due to all the mixed nuts involved or by Procter & Gamble because of how deep we're entering soap opera territory think about it a lot of talk not much action and the story thread so far sexual harassment accusations money hidden in offshore accounts extramarital affairs closeted husbands open marriages gaffes and feuds and quarrels and family discord i keep waiting for an evil twin to show up although you could say that rick perry was george bush's evil twin okay eviler twin we learned that Newt Gingrich presented his first wife with divorce papers while she was recovering from cervical cancer surgery, and he left his second wife right after she'd been diagnosed with MS. Makes you wonder how sick America has to get before he leaves us alone. <coughs> Mitt Romney announced that he's not concerned about the very poor. Problem is, people suspect his definition of the very poor consists of anybody who doesn't have two live-in maids. One thing about Mitt, definitely throwing a whole upstairs-downstairs spin onto the proceedings, which puts Ron Paul into the kitchen, and Rick Santorum washing one of the Bentleys. Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of really good characters, but then again in soap operas, simply because you're dead doesn't mean you can't come back. Maybe at the convention in August, Mike Huckleby will emerge from the shower, and like the eighth season of Dallas, will realize his whole last year was nothing but a dream. For Radio Parallax... I'm Will Durst.
0: Thank you, Will. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. We got plenty more. Don't go away.